You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Man, thank you, Aaron, for that. And uh, that offer is available to you today. And I wouldn't be surprised if wouldn't be surprised if in this room today there's a wandering heart. And maybe nobody even knows. You've been here the whole time, but your heart is far from God. That was the problem with the Pharisees, and Jesus said, you draw nigh to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And uh, I think that maybe we ought to be more worried about our hearts than our bodies, really. So let's make sure that we're not in that category. So John's letter is to believers. <clears throat> He's writing to members of God's family. And as we've almost finished our study in 1 John, I, I believe his purpose for writing this letter is summed up in verse 13. When he says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He he wants those in the family to know that they're part of the family. You realize that you can know for sure that you're in the family. In verse 13, he makes it very clear These things have I written that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you know that you have eternal life, that you believe on the name of the Son of God. Last week we focused on verses 6 through 12 and established the fact that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ alone. And there are many out there and they're looking for eternal life in other places. And I had the young men up here standing here and they had the signs that said religion and they would open the folder and it said no eternal life. And if you're on the path of religion... It will not lead you to the destination of eternal life. Right. If, you are, if, you have the, if you're on the path of good works and you think that your good works are going to please God, that does not lead you down the path to eternal life. If you're, if you're trusting in baptism, you open up that folder. It doesn't say eternal life. Only in the folder that says Jesus Christ will there be eternal life. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you have Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Without him, there is no eternal life. And so I want to ask the question that I asked even last week is, do you have Jesus? If your answer is no, then according to John, you don't have eternal life. And if you don't have eternal life, let me just ask you today, why don't you get that settled this morning? If you don't have eternal life, then come and get Jesus Christ by faith. Place your trust in his payment on the cross. And you can, as Brother Chad said earlier in his prayer, you can walk out of this place never, ha- never not having eternal life again. It will be yours for eternity, and I'm thankful for that today. Well, what John is writing about is assurance. And, and I'm going to review a little bit about assurance because it leads into our text today. But the absolute certainty that we are in good standing with God and that we have eternal life, that is assurance. If you think about the nature of John's letter, that's where he's been headed the whole time. Uh, He has been pointing out the family traits. He's saying these are the things that prove that you're part of the family. These are the marks, these are the traits that point to your father. And where's where's the evidence then? Where's the evidence that you are part of the family in your life, 
Where's the presence of the things that John talks about in his book here? Things like love. That's sacrificially giving for the good of somebody else. Where's the obedience to God's word? That's a willingness to conform your life to what he's revealed through his word. Where is it? Uh, where is, where's, the, where's the evidence that you live in righteousness instead of sin? Where's the confidence that you have in the day of judgment? These are all markers that, that give you assurance that you're part of the family. And let me just encourage you today, if you don't have those markers, again, let me encourage you to make sure that before you leave here that you have eternal life. As we've gone through most of the letter, to me the biggest marker that we've seen has obviously been what you believe about Jesus Christ. That is the biggest marker, folks. Your, your view of Jesus Christ determines whether or not you have eternal life. If you believe He's the Son of God, and you believe that He's the Savior of the world, and you've placed your faith in Him alone, you can have eternal life, and thus you can have assurance. We, we, know that we, have, we can know that we have eternal life. We can be certain if our faith is established on the truth of God's word. You can know. You know, that separates biblical Christianity from the rest of the world belief systems. See, most other religions are built on the idea that you have to work to earn your salvation. Most other religious systems say you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to pray this much, you have to meet these requirements... And listen, if that's the case, then most religions are full of people who live their whole lives wondering if they're in or not. They live their whole life wondering, have I done enough? They live their whole life thinking, is God pleased with my actions or not? But listen, real faith is built on the truth that Jesus Christ already did the work for us. He already died on the cross for us. You don't have to wonder if the work is enough because on the cross, before he died, he said, it is finished, Amen. and then he gave up the ghost. I'm so thankful that we can know we have salvation. You know, it's a foreign concept to most people. Assurance is so important to the Christian life, and yet many people live their lives without it. You know, without it, we're almost spiritually paralyzed. We're almost ineffective in our relationship with and service to God. I read a quote by D.L. Moody, a famous preacher from about 100 years ago. And he said, I've never known a Christian who was any good in the work of Christ who did not have the assurance of salvation. And I think that's important for us today that we have assurance. And I think hopefully last week's message and then this week's message maybe will help us a little bit with it. I know that life is full of uncertainties, but in this most important area of our faith, folks, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to be in, you don't have to be in, in limbo. You can be sure if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. It's possible to be saved and not have assurance. It is. It's also possible to have false assurance and not be saved. And John is trying to help those that are really, truly part of the family to know, because like Moody said, we are ineffective in the rest of our Christian lives if we don't have assurance. You know, the, the strength of our faith really it determines whether or not we can take the next steps as a Christian. Just about a week and a half ago, I went to the Black Hills. We took some friends of ours to the Black Hills and enjoyed the time there. They, they, the wife had never been to Rushmore, so we took her to Mount Rushmore and we took her down to the, uh, to the gallery there where they have the little sculpture of Mount Rushmore and they do an explanation of Mount Rushmore. And what I found to be very interesting 
as I looked at the mountain and then heard the story, what was interesting to me is that of the 400 or so men that worked on it over the course of 14 years with South Dakota weather, that not one person died constructing Mount Rushmore. That was kind of surprising to me. So it just caused me to, it just kind of piqued my interest and I started looking at some other construction projects uh, and to know if that was a, a normal thing. It didn't seem normal to me. Uh, but I started looking into the construction of the bridges near San Francisco. My, my mother-in-law is here this morning. I, my father-in-law, Brother Stevens, Pastor Marshall Stevens, pa- preached at the men's retreat this weekend. So he's down in Omaha. He'll be coming back up. It's good to have them with us. I'm thankful he pastors out in American Canyon, California. And we've very many times when, when we visit them, we either drive over the Bay Bridge or we drive over the Golden Gate Bridge to get into San Francisco. So I was doing a little research on those projects. And of course, they're much bigger projects than Mount Rushmore, uh, but they don't have South Dakota weather to deal with out there. So I figured maybe that kind of is the equalizer. Well, I was looking into the Bay Bridge construction, and as I was reading in that, I, I realized that over the four years of the construction, it was going on at the same time as Mount Rushmore, uh, about two dozen men died constructing the Bay Bridge. So then I, I went over to the Golden Gate Bridge in my research, and I started reading that the Golden Gate Bridge had a much better track record. And the reason for the better track record is Strauss, the architect, and the, the one that was overseeing the project, he, he spent $130,000 constru- to buy a safety net that literally spanned the entire length of the Golden Gate Bridge. $130,000 back then would have been a whole lot of money. I mean, not, not really all that much compared to the whole project. But I would imagine that a lot of people back then said that's a real waste of time or waste, waste of resources. $130,000. Well, over the course of the four or five years, I think the Golden Gate Bridge was being constructed, uh, 19 men fell off the Golden Gate Bridge but were rescued by the safety net. At another point, they had a major accident, large scaffolding, fell and when that happened there were some lives that were taken but for the most part the safety net did its job and and if you go and read about the safety net under the golden gate bridge you realize they worked at a pace that it, it, that shocked everybody it was much more efficient than the bay bridge construction it would they, they were much more productive than the bay bridge construction and in the and in the course of it they lost fewer lives than the bay bridge construction and the reason was for the safety net not just because the safety net would rescue men when they fell, but because men knew there was a safety net. They were able to work with more, with more uh, efficiency. They were able to work with more confidence. They, they weren't afraid the whole time of falling. I, I, I read a quote from one of the men that worked on the Bay Bridge, the one that did not have a safety net, and here's what he said. The worst aspect was not being able to show any fear. The steel workers were merciless. And to preserve our self-respect, we had to act nonchalant and follow along, walking those beams and planks, climbing through small holes, and hanging by our teeth, even though our clothes were drenched with cold sweat. So the whole time, somebody working on the Bay Bridge, because there was not a safety net, it wasn't nearly as productive, it wasn't nearly as efficient, they lost lives, and in the meantime, the men just worked with very little confidence. On the other hand, the Golden Gate workers, they had to be told not to jump into the net for fun. And I think it proves the principle that John brings out. 
See, the more secure you are and the more confident you are in your position, the more productive you'll be as a Christian. See, that's why a culture of fear is counterproductive. If you work in an environment or you're an employer over, an, uh, over employees, if you create a culture of fear where people are insecure and they're paranoid, you may think it gives you control, but, it, it, but you lose the production, you lose the security that, is, that, that you find in places where men are secure and ladies are secure in their position. It's more productive. And that really is what John's message here is in verse 13 through 17. See, when we're secure in Christ, when we know that we have eternal life, we are free from fear enough to take steps as a family member. If I know that my position is secure, then I won't be held back to take the next steps that come in my natural growth, growth process. The knowledge of eternal life is that it's certain it puts us in a position to take those steps. Assurance is the gateway to spiritual growth. The Christian life starts with the strength of our faith. Did you hear that word faith? Now, it, without faith, this is just religion. Without faith, it's just outward form. We either have religion that begins with what we believe, or we have religion that begins with what we do. In our religion, folks, it begins with faith. It begins with what we believe, and it begins with the strength of what we believe. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you've lived your whole life in religion where you simply do something without really believing in someone or believing in anything very strongly, then you just have outward form. It's just religion. But that's never the way that God intended for our religious spiritual lives to be. It's about faith. It's about belief. Faith is the essence, it's the foundation of our relationship with God. And according to John, if faith is the foundation, prayer is the function. If faith is the foundation, if that's where it laid, then it's, 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 it comes forth, it outflows in the function of prayer. And, and you say, well, that's kind of a strange leap. Well, let, let me explain it this way. I believe that no exercise more clearly encapsulate, encapsulates the Christian life than your prayer life. David Jackman said, presumption and doubt put the sinner to sleep. But faith and assurance animate the believer to greater godliness, not least in the exercise of prayer. You see, our connection with God is not religion. It's a relationship. And even at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, you go back to the Garden of Eden, you realize God didn't place mankind there just to serve him and do whatever he wanted. He placed mankind in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, to have a personal relationship if fellowship with God. He's not looking for followers to simply do what he says. He wants followers who fellowship and commune with him like any of us would with people that we love. Can you imagine how unsatisfying it would be if all of your relationships were simply built on what people did for you? Well, they do this for me, they do this for me. When I need this, I call them, they bring me my coffee. You know, if all your relationships were established just on what people did for you, and you never once had a real conversation with another human being, you tell me how satisfying that life would be. And the reason it's not satisfying for us is because we're made in the image of God, and that's how God is. He wants fellowship, He wants a relationship. And in the same way that if you have a relationship, you have communication, that's the way that we have relationships? Well, think about prayer. What is prayer? 
Prayer is communication. Listen, if you have a relationship with God, or if you say you have a relationship with God, but you never pray, you don't have a relationship with God. Prayer is the outflow of faith. Faith is the foundation. Prayer is the function. It is communication. If you say, yes, uh, this is my best friend in the whole world, and they, oh, really? Well, when's the last time you talked to him? Well, 18 years ago. You, that you can't say that's your best friend right. if you don't have communication. Right. So when John says, well, here's your foundation, it's faith, and then here's the outflow, it's prayer, then I don't think it's a leap. It's actually a very natural progression of thought. It's the most essential function of faith is prayer. Our Christian lives are about a relationship. It's no accident that after John reveals his purpose for the letter to establish assurance that he immediately moves to the importance of having confidence in our prayer lives. So I'd like to go through some big points here in this text, in these verses, and then come back to how they connect to our prayer life. The first big point is obviously, in verse 13, it's eternal security. We've already discussed this. Without that assurance, you can't take the next steps. We start with that because if God is... Listen, we start with eternal security because if God is capable of handling the eternal security and destination of your soul, there's nothing beyond His power. So here's the thought. If God can be trusted with my soul, then I know He can hear my prayers. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If God is able to secure my soul for eternity, he can hear my prayers. God hears us. That's the second big point. So again, I, these are, I want to just kind of give you some main points about God that what he provides for us. The first is eternal security. The second is that God hears us. We have this promise that God hears us when we make our thoughts and our burdens and desires known to him. You know, God is not hard of hearing. And I'm thankful for that. He doesn't ignore his children. You might say, well, listen, I don't matter to God. I'm just me. Nobody ever notices me. I don't even know that God knows who I am. Why would he hear my prayer? Listen, let me tell you this today, give you an important message that maybe you've never heard before. And that is that your life matters to God. We could go to Luke 15, it gives the parable of the shepherd leaving the flock to go find one lost lamb. And in that same passage, you have the woman that is sweeping the whole house just to find one coin. And you have the story of the prodigal son, uh, whose father who waited and waited and prayed for his son to come home. Listen, every soul matters to God. Every life matters to God. And that's a reason that, that if you're a biblical thinker, that you have a problem with those today who would dispose of a child that's unborn. Because every life matters to God. Every soul is important to God. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every human life matters. He loves the whole world, and He's concerned about your needs. And you may think nobody cares about you, and nobody notices you, and you're just here today in the background, but God knows you, He cares about you, and He wants to provide for your needs. You know, we might assume that, that we're too lowly for God to hear us, but in reality, he's better at listening to us than we are at listening to other people. I sometimes have a tendency not to hear my children when they ask me a question. I've used this illustration on Wednesday nights before, and I might as well just, I did it since Sunday school, I'll do it right now too. I'll ask forgiveness from Caitlin 
rather than permission. My youngest, or my third daughter, Caitlin, 13 years old. And Caitlin is a middle child. I'll just stop right there. (laughs) I'm a middle child too, so I relate to Caitlin. But see, I have five children, four of whom are girls, and and one of them's a boy who talks a lot too. And I say everywhere we go, it's like a flock of birds. You know what I mean? There's that kind of, just, I'm not going to do my, my bird impression, but you can imagine. So sometimes the noise level, it makes it hard to discern sometimes what's happening. And there are times when my children will say, hey, dad, and I won't hear it. And, and, or they'll say, daddy, and I don't notice that they said daddy, and, and I miss it. Well, Caitlin is also, not, on top of being one of five, she's also the middle child, which for some reason, the middle child syndrome, I do believe it's real. And that the middle child kind of is the one that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It happened to me my whole, my whole life, okay? I know, it's real. Well, sometimes, Caitlin's voice gets drowned out by all the other voices. And so, uh, and, they, and they say that it's the, the middle child's the one that kind of gets, gets forgotten or excluded. And, and truth is, Caitlin is the only child we've ever left somewhere. And <laughs> so, again, I'm sorry, Caitlin. But, she, but so she started, she had, came up with this ingenious plan. She uh, heard a story or read in her Bible about how Jesus Christ in the garden, uh, he prayed, Abba, Father, and, and it, Paul writes about that two other times, Abba, Father, and it's about when we don't know what to pray and we're praying and we have a need, we pray to our Father, Abba, Father. So she started not calling me Dad or Daddy. She starts, when she really wants my attention, she says, Father, Abba. And for some reason, I've never once ignored that. I hear it every time, and it really is ingenious, except that now my other kids are saying it, and I'm back to ignoring the middle child. No, just kidding. You know, I know it's a silly illustration, but Jesus Christ told us to use the term Father when we're addressing God in prayer, because that's our relationship. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. That's how concerned he is about you. He's our father, our Abba. He, he cares for us like a father does for his, his children. And you know what's great about God, our father, is there, there are no middle children in God's family. Amen. There's not a middle child that gets left behind. There's not a middle child that gets missed or excluded. No one is, is excluded from being heard. No one is ignored. If we come to him as a child to a father, he hears us every time. And he's so mighty that he can hear all of his children at the same time. And he loves us so much that he hears all of his children at the same time. Amen. He's mighty and he loves us and he hears us. That's the promise that we have here in 1 John. So God is able, let me just, I'm just going to review these as we go, then we'll apply it at the end. So God is able to keep our souls eternally. That's the first point. As our Father, he hears us when we bring our burdens to him. That's the second point. The third big point I want to point out here in this passage is that God not only hears us, but he will answer us. See, God's not just interested in entertaining our requests. He wants to answer them. It's not an ego feed for him to come and say, yes, let the peasants come and bring their needs before me. And I'll sit up here and look at them in a condescending manner and then scoot them out the door. No, he wants to hear our requests, but he has the intention of answering them. 
This is a truth found in Scripture. I don't have to even spend much time on this, but Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Luke eleven nine 9 says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. No, we could go on and on about God's desire to not only hear us when we pray, but also to provide an answer to our prayers. You know, we should be thankful that we have a Father who doesn't just hear, but provides. But be careful. See, because there's a major qualifier in verse 14 when he says, if we ask anything according to his will. See, a lot of people gloss over that phrase. They miss that, according to his will. But that's found often in Scripture. I mean, we could go back to chapter 3, verse 22, where he said, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments. You know that prayer is not a blank check. Prayer is not one of those things. And a lot of people will say this, that if we just pray and we believe that God will provide it, but that's not scriptural. The scriptural viewpoint of prayer is that we must pray according to God's will. That's the scriptural viewpoint. Jesus Christ said in John 15, 7, If ye abide in me, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, then ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Even Jesus in the garden, when he was in his body, he didn't want to go through the, the torment and the torture of the cross, but he knew that was God's will for him. But even then, uh, in the garden, when he prayed, he said, Father, if thou be willing... If it's your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I think it's very clear that when we pray, God doesn't say, okay, here's the checkbook. I've signed all the checks, whatever you want. It's like a genie in a, in a lamp. It's like a vending machine. It's like Santa Claus. Just put it on the list, and whatever you ask for, you'll get it. No, no, we, we have a qualification here, and that is that we pray according to God's will. See, our mistake is that we look at verses on prayer and we think all of our wants and wishes are going to come and God's obligated, but we must pray for God's will. And you say, well, how's that going to happen? Well, God's word, listen, God's word is how he reveals himself to us. What he likes and desires is clearly laid out in this book. And the primary method of praying in line with God's will is to be familiar enough with his character that you wouldn't pray something that's opposed to it. You have to know about God. You have to know what he reveals about himself before you can pray for the kind of things that you know he would want you to pray for. In the same way that, that if I'm going to buy a gift for my wife, I better know what she likes. And if I've been married to her for long enough, then I, I probably should know what she likes, although that's a little bit more complicated for us husbands than it probably should be. But if I know her... If you want to get her a present, there's probably not anybody else that you should ask before you ask me. I know what she desires. I know what she likes. And listen, if you're a child of God and you have his word, you need to look and search through his word to find out what God is like, to see what his character is like, to see what his nature is like before you start praying. Because there's a lot of selfish prayer going on out there that is actually opposed to the kind of things that God would want to see accomplished. We must know what God is like. We must be aware of his nature before we pray. And a lot of people just pray for what they, they want. But the right way to pray is to be familiar enough with God to know what he wants and to pray for those things. And listen, and when he answers, accept his plan without complaint or anger. Because here you have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, 
in the garden, he's saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When he answers on a different time frame, be thankful that he answers at all. And if he never answers, assume that's the answer. So far then that John has brought out these facts. I'm going to review them. They're easy. God is capable of preserving your soul for eternity. If he's capable of of providing eternal security, he's most definitely able to hear us when we pray. And if we pray according to his will, not only does he hear us, but he's capable of answering those requests. And then John uses an example, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Because John uses an example of God's ability to answer our requests with an illustration that highlights the fourth big point out of this. We'll get to that in a minute. Look at verses 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. This time we'll begin the invitation. Now, some verses are complicated. Some verses are hard to figure out. What does this mean? Well, it's a hotly debated text, and I don't plan to spend much time on these verses. Can I just be honest with you? And I have my opinions on these, but I'm going to give you a quick overview, and it's important for us to know that John never clarifies the sin that is not unto death and the sin that is unto death. So for us then to define it for him would be speculation, and we can compare some other things from other scriptures, but that's not going to be my focus. If that, was, if that was what John wanted us to focus on, he would have clearly laid it out. He doesn't. I'm going to tie it into the focus that I think God wants us to have. So let me just say, since John doesn't define it, I'm not going to. It, it could mean he could be referring to the physical death of like Ananias and Sapphira. If you read the book of Acts, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God took their life. That was a sin unto death. Well, Maybe that's what it means. It could mean spiritual death. Jesus Christ warned the Pharisees about blasphemy to the Holy Spirit or of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12. He was referring to when the Holy Spirit speaks to us about salvation, convicts us of our sin, and we constantly and continually reject that and don't accept the offer of salvation. We get to the point where we finally have our last offer, and then we, if we die without Christ, then we spend eternity separated from him. That could be what he's talking about. I don't know when that happens. I don't pretend to be able to judge that. Christ said it's possible, so I trust it. Maybe that's what John meant. Uh, It could mean leaving the faith. I don't know. We don't know for sure. All we do know is this. Sin is a big deal to God. He says in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. Sin is no small thing. A person in sin needs spiritual life. That's what we read here. If there's a person in sin and they're living in sin, and they're not doing what's right, then somebody needs to pray for them because they need spiritual life. That's the point. And John says we should pray for them. Why? Well, here's the next big point. We should pray for those in sin because it's a problem only God can fix. We should pray for those that are living in sin because it's a problem only God can fix. And here's the, and I'll give, I'll give you the big point in a minute, but reaching a human heart is impossible for you and me. I don't have access to your heart. You don't have access to my heart. I can't change your heart. You can't change my heart. There's only one person in this universe that has that capability, and that's God himself. 
See, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, he can do the impossible. He can reach the unreachable. He is the God of the impossible. And that's the fourth big point that I see here is that God can do what no one else can do. So think about it. There's eternal security. God has given us that. God hears our prayer. God can answer our prayer. And when, it, when you're talking about a sinner, God can do what nobody else can do. And I'm thankful for that. If he can keep our souls for eternity, then he can hear our prayers. If he can hear our prayers, then he can answer them. If he can answer them, then he can answer the, even the hardest of, of the problems that we face. And that is a sinner that's away from God. See, he's using this as an example. When you, when you need to go to God, he hears and he can answer. And listen, here's what John's saying. He can even answer the problems that we don't think there's an answer to. He can even fix the problems that are too big for you and me. God has the answers for them. See, when God reaches a heart that is full of sin and hardened towards spiritual things, it's a miracle that only the God of the impossible can accomplish. It's as much a miracle for God to bring life to a heart that is dead and bound to sin than it was for him to rise from the dead on the third day. It's a miracle. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Those that are saved, I want you today, don't ever lose sight of the fact that God brought you back to life. Amen. He raised you from the dead. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, he can bring you to life this morning. He works miracles, and when you've experienced it, you know that God is in the business of doing impossible things. When I read this text, that's kind of what is standing out to me. God can do impossible things. God can give a, a, a soul that is unsure of their salvation eternal security. God can keep that soul like he says, like Jesus Christ said in John 10, he said, they're in my hand, they're in my Father's hand, no man can pluck them out of my hand. He can give us eternal security. It seems impossible, but God can do it. God can hear every prayer of every saint all around the world, all at the same time. It seems impossible, but God can do that. Not only does he hear our prayers, but he can answer our prayers. He has every provision for the answer for our prayers. It seems impossible, but God can do that. And then John closes with the example here. and says it seems impossible for someone that's bound by sin, so for someone that's dead in sin, but God, with his long arm of love, can even reach down and change that dead heart and bring it to life. He can do impossible things. Man. And you talk about a faith builder. You talk about a confidence builder. Think about all that he, John is saying that he can do. He can keep a soul eternally, even a soul, a sinner like mine. He can hear my prayers all, and yours at the same time. He can answer them. He even cares for those that are in sin. God's able to do impossible things. But this is where we go back to verse 14. See, look at it. And this is the confidence that we have in him. See, that word confidence, we've looked at it before, we've seen it, it's boldness in other places in John. In 1 John, it means freedom in speaking. Fearless, nothing hidden. We, listen, we have all the reason in the world to be confident in our prayer lives because we've seen what God can do. 
See, a lot of people, when it comes to prayer, they go and they're, they're afraid and, and they don't have faith and they don't think that God cares. They don't think that God can answer. And say so they go kind of in fear or they go in shame or they're dragged into their prayer life thinking, well, I've got to pray. But no, listen, when you stop and think about all the impossible things that God can do, you should have confidence when you pray. God has proven his power. He's strong enough to secure us for eternity. He's attentive enough to hear our prayers. He's capable enough to answer our prayers. And he's patient enough to reach down and change a dead sinner's heart. So the question today is, where's the confidence? You know, you look around in this world and, and you think, man, these, the, nobody should be more confident in their faith than, than the followers of God. Nobody should be more bold about their faith than people that know they have eternal security, than people that know that God hears prayers and answers prayers and that God can reach a dead sinner's heart. Man, there should be nobody louder. There should be nobody more bold. There should be nobody more confident in their trust of God than Christians because look at all the impossible things that God has done. And yet you look around in this culture, the Christians aren't the confident ones. You look around, the Christians aren't the loudest ones. They're not the ones with, the, with the, the platform that's reaching everywhere. So why aren't we praying with full confidence that God hears and answers prayers? Do we believe He does? Do we believe He can? Why aren't we out there sharing our faith with boldness and confidence? Do we believe that this faith is real? Do we believe that God is the God of the impossible? If we really did, I think we'd have more confidence in our faith. Why aren't we praying for brothers and sisters in sin? Because there are people that used to go to Eastside Baptist Church and they're away from the Lord now. They're not here today. And yet we don't ever pray for them. But if we believed what this passage says, we would be on our knees every day knowing that their only hope is to reach out to the God of the impossible. He's the only one with access to their hearts. We have all the evidence that we need to know that God is able and He's willing to provide for us, to bear any burden for us, to heal every wound and to comfort every turmoil, but we often end up placing our trust in things that could never fix what we need the most. We rely on life experience. We think, well, I've done this for many years. I can just, I mean, I can practically do this in my sleep. But listen, if you rely on life experience, you will have someday faced something that you've never seen before. It's limited. And some really lean on their education, and as good as education is, someday you're going to deal with a problem that you don't have the answer to. And I'm thankful for the advancements of, of health care, but even doctors have limitations. I'm thankful and I like technology and it can be helpful, but it's, it's never ever ministered to a human soul that it's at their lowest point, ever. If you rely on your savvy when it comes to finances, that's fine, but your money's going to run out someday. And in all of these things, they have their advantages, but all you get is what they offer. In all the things, in health, in our education, in our finances, in our intelligence, in our charisma, our personality, our personal strength, they all have some advantages, but all you'll ever get is what they offer. It doesn't go any deeper than what they offer. They don't deal with life's most important issues, the eternal matters. 
See, the soul of a man lives for eternity, and no matter how much money you have, it could never fix that problem. Money, intelligence, skill, charisma, experience... None of those deal with life's most important matters. They help in some areas, but listen, you only get what they offer. But listen, with prayer, you get all that God offers. Which means there's no limit. See, the most important things in our lives depend on what God can do. Saving a soul. We live in a world bound by sin. The only thing they know is sin. They don't know anything different. They're bound to it. It's like a master. We live in a world of sin, and if the world is going to look to reform, social reform for salvation, it's going to leave a lot of people empty because it doesn't deal with the problem they have, which is sin. You see, God sent His Son Jesus Christ, to die on a cross because he knew our biggest problem was sin. And if that didn't get taken care of, we would never have eternal life. And today, folks, I'm telling you that you could look everywhere else to find satisfaction, but you'll never find it anywhere except the cross of Jesus Christ. He came to die on a cross for your sins, and if you'll place your trust in him, you can have eternal life. You can leave, as we've already heard, you can leave this place knowing that you have eternal life. And that's something only God can do. The most important things depend on what God can do, bringing a backslidden person back to him. We can try and we can talk him into it and we can say all the right things, but listen, only God has access to a heart. So we need to pray. That's the first thing we need to do is we need to take that person to God in prayer. We don't need to go tell other people about it or spread it around or put it... We need to get on our knees... And pray because only God has access to that heart. Only God can heal a body when doctors don't have the answers. Only God can restore a relationship with a family member that you haven't talked to in years. Only God can forgive a wrong. Only God can help you grow. See, when we place our confidence in God, we get all He has to offer. When we place our confidence somewhere else, we get all it has to offer. Which do you think has the most to offer? See, your prayer life indicates where you think you can get the most help. And if you aren't praying, then you somehow have reasoned that your experience is enough, that your intelligence is enough, that your money is all you need, or that the doctors or technology or your life, whatever it is, you have somehow determined over the course of your life that that's what you need, and it's time to get back to placing your confidence in God. Where's your confidence? You have a father that's strong enough to keep your soul. You have a father that's attentive enough to hear your prayers. He's capable enough to answer your prayers. You have a father that has a reach that's long enough to change a human heart. And you don't think he can answer your prayer about finances today? You don't think he has the answers to that health need that's weighing on you? He keeps your soul for eternity, but you don't think that he can get you through this trial so you haven't prayed? 
Listen, you have a God that can help you with anything. The problem at work, he has the answers to. The relationship that you want restored, he has the answers to. You think you can find answers by placing your confidence somewhere else? Verse 14 makes it very clear. This is the confidence, what God has done. That's where, we, that's where our confidence lies. So today, let me ask you, where's your confidence? There's only one source that truly provides confidence in what you're facing, and that's the Heavenly Father. I think of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Why? Because he's unlimited in power. He's unlimited in love. He's unlimited in his wisdom and in his resources and in his strength. And in every way, I have the opposite. So today, maybe it's time to trade limited for limitless. Not just in our daily life, but in your eternal security. Folks, I'm going to say this again. If you're trying to find salvation in yourself, you'll never find it. Only in Jesus. Trade limited for limitless. Trade foolish for wise. Trade weak for strong. Trade impossible for possible. Friends, where's your confidence today? It should be in a limitless God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's stand together. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.